Well, good morning. Uh, welcome to uh, Emmanuel Bible Church. And if you are visiting with us, w- please feel welcome to speak with any of the members or myself or any of the leaders um, just to get to know us. We'd love to get to know you and uh, um, let us know something about your story and what brought you or how you came about to visit with us today. And so um, in that spirit, we want to just take a brief, like literally a brief I'm going to emphasize the word brief, like a minute. If you, are, um, if you could just take a moment, look around you, and if you see someone you don't recognize, introduce yourself. Otherwise, uh, wish your neighbor, if you recognize everyone, wish your neighbor a blessed Lord's Day. Let's, uh, let's bring our attention back uh, together. <clears throat> Hopefully you began some conversations. You got to say hello to someone you haven't been able to talk to this week, or perhaps uh, you've met someone new. And we encourage you to continue those conversations after the service, uh, as we have just an extended time of fellowship outside. And uh, um, just, just take advantage of our of our church and our ability to gather together and to have fellowship one to another. Um, on that note, I uh, just want to remind you also that um, our church uh, annual family camp is coming up uh, during uh, the Labor Day weekend. Labor Day weekend, right? Okay, I always get that mixed with Memorial. Labor Day weekend. And so uh, if you are planning to sign up and haven't done so, find TJ. You'll, you'll see TJ. He'll be walking around and uh, uh, people could direct you to TJ to make sure that you sign up. And I, I think our uh, payments due today, too. And so if you wouldn't mind uh, cutting a check, making payments, um, so that uh, we're all squared and ready to participate in family camp together. And so, by the way, uh, family camp means our church family. It doesn't mean you can only come if you have a family. And so, um, you know, please feel free to, to come and, uh, and to enjoy that with us. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. We want to continue. In fact, we want to finish off a portion of Scripture that we began a couple of weeks ago, um, Romans 13, verses 1 through 7, and it's about submission to God-ordained government. That was kind of part one a couple of weeks ago, and today we'll, we'll kind of hit with, uh, with part two. <clears throat> Let me just say this. Uh, I, I, re- I realize that often uh, Scripture gives us commands that might be a little more challenging to us. And, and submission to authority, any kind of authority, whether it's government, as we'll talk about today, or it's submission of wives to husbands, or submission of children to their parents, or submission of, of all people to authorities above them, or to members of the church to their elders. Submission, right, whether it's in your workplace to your boss, submission is one of those commands that are more irksome to us than possibly most of the commands in scripture you know if the scriptures say do not murder someone like yeah you know like i feel like that something but i i've never really been tempted to do that if the scriptures say do not steal it's like okay that's a pretty easy temptation for me to avoid i but when it comes to submission to that cankerous boss or to that really mean teacher 
uh, to that individual that has some authority uh, above you, that is placed in a position of authority above you, that you are convinced does not deserve that place of authority, that can be quite difficult. So the question that we must ask ourselves constantly as Christians is how do you receive, what's the key to receiving more difficult commands in Scripture? And the answer will always be the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have a capacity to obey God, even those things that are more difficult or odious to us to obey, because of what Christ has done for us. Because if we understand the gospel well enough, if we understand that we are so undeserving, that we rightfully have no case to make before God, if he should send us straight to hell right now, if we honestly embrace that truth and that reality, then the fact that he would send his perfect son to die for my sins is almost unthinkable. But that unthinkable grace is the means by which we have been purchased and granted life. And it's within that, it's under that umbrella, under that truth, it's with those colored glasses that we could view life and recognize that there is nothing too difficult for the redeemed because the most difficult thing has been done unto us. The Christian has the capacity to love the unlovable. Why? Because Christ loved you. And if we understand the depravity of our own souls, we know that Christ loving us means that he loved the unlovable. The Christian has the capacity to forgive the unforgivable. How? Well, because Christ first forgave you. And your entire mountain, your lifelong right, pursuit of self-centered sinfulness, all of that has been paid in full on the cross. And Christ paid, not just winked at it and shoved it under the rug, but he paid for it in full. The Father's wrath that should have fallen on me fell upon him. So we, are, we have the capacity, we have the capacity at least, right, to forgive the unforgivable. We have the capacity to obey, to follow, to rejoice, to be brand new because we are redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ and our sins are washed away. We are renewed by the Holy Spirit so that we are a new creation. So as we approach topics like submission, children to parents, wives to husbands, members to elders, workers to managers, citizens to government authorities, we are given the distinctly Christian task of submitting to our authorities because God has set them before us. And that's what we believe. That's what we know from Scripture, that God has placed those institutions and individuals in our lives. They might be odious. They might be difficult. They might be hard to work with. They might be unlovable sometimes. Nevertheless, God has sovereignly placed them in our lives and have asked us to walk in submission to them. This is what we mean when we talk about submission to God-ordained Government, And this is also what we mean, that the gospel is the basis by which all of these things flow. Let me remind you, right, that we walked through the first 11 chapters of Romans, and in that was Paul basically bearing down, carefully looking, taking a deep dive at what it means for us to be saved by the gospel of grace. 
And now, starting in chapter 12, we have the rest of Romans, and all of the rest of these chapters are the, pra- is the practical implications of a gospel-centered life. In other words, if it's true that we have been saved by God's grace, apart from works, and that is the miracle amongst miracles, then what does that transformation mean to me? How do I engage with others? How do I engage with this world? How do I engage with life? And that, that is all answered for, for us in Romans 12 through the rest of this epistle, Romans 15. And uh, Romans 12, 1 began our, our kind of pivot from doctrine to duty this way. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is a spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And that began this journey into all these things that we are responsible for. And here in chapter 13, we speak of submission to God-ordained government. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and seek His help in applying these things to our lives for His glory. Heavenly Father, even as we come before You, we recognize that there is often, Lord, um, difficult commands to obey. They're difficult for us, Lord, sometimes because of our pride, sometimes because we we are certain that we know better, sometimes because of our self-righteousness, because we feel like we are in the right, sometimes simply because of ignorance, Lord, because we have not looked at Scripture and recognized that you have made it clear that we are to live in certain ways. But regardless of what it is that hinders us from obedience to you, Lord, may may we be today refreshed again in the knowledge of our salvation in Christ. And let that feed our souls, delight our hearts, and make us glad to the point of obedience, to the point of desiring to honor you and to please our God above all things, even before pleasing ourselves. And when we walk in a manner that that makes the name of Jesus Christ honored, even amongst its enemies, so that even the enemies of Jesus Christ and the cross must recognize that they are principled people who believe what God's word says and will live by it and will die by it, so that we might represent you in the way that your people, redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, should represent you in submission to their God and Savior in submission to the Lord of the universe, and in submission to the authorities you have placed before us. We lift up these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we want to do a little bit of review. Oh, I'm sorry. I've got to turn this on. Wait. There you go. Turn. Oh, there you go. A little bit of review. Um, there you go. Um, we, we, uh, we ran through the first two of these, and so we'll pick up on three, but I, I wanted to at least review a little bit so that if you weren't here with us a couple of weeks ago, you'd know what we are talking about. There we go. All are subject to governing authorities. That's the first part of verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. <laughs> I, I think this is not working. All right, let's, let's, 
We'll just kind of work with that, right? All are subject to governing authorities. And, and we want to say a couple of things just by way of reminder in verse 1. One is that this applies to every person universally. In fact, we said that the phrase, let every person, is literally, let all suke, let every soul. So it's referring to persons, not just the redeemed. It certainly includes the redeemed of Jesus Christ, but it's saying that God's ordination, his selecting of government over a human society is for the sake of every soul, every human being to live in subjection to those governing authorities. So it applies universally. Secondly, there's a singular exception because for most Christians, as soon as I say that we are to be subject or live in submission to government authorities, I know the first thing that comes to mind, right? Is Peter's statement in Acts 5, 29. Peter, when he is charged to not teach in the name of Jesus Christ, he says, we must obey God rather than men. That's true. That is the singular exception. So the authority, the, if we want to make kind of like a, a tree of authority, the, the, the flow chart of authority begins with God. He is the final and ultimate authority. And from him, he has ordained certain authorities over us. <clears throat> so that every human is supposed to submit to some governing authority. And as he or she does that, is ultimately submitting to God's authority. And so the singular exception, of course, would be that if that authority asked that citizen to do something that's contrary to what God's law says. In other words, if any authority that is over you asks you to sin, then you're obligated not to do that. Why? Because you have a higher authority in that flowchart, and that is God himself. Well, that brings us to our second point, right? I'll do, I'll do that just as a signal to you that we're moving on, I guess, right? Our second point, <clears throat> um, all authority is God-ordained. All, all authority is God-ordained. Look at the second part of verse 1, right? For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. All authority is instituted by God. Yeah, there you go. All authority is instituted by God. See, that's a very significant theological statement, right? For there, for there is no authority except from God. So negatively stated, it's saying that there is no such thing as any authority on this planet except that God has sovereignly placed it there. It's kind of heavy. Because you think about some of the bad, Right? Bad governments that have existed in this world. If you've ever studied uh, the many Caesars, not not a good group of people, right? Immoral, vicious, they often conspired and murdered other people in order to become the person that they are. So you think today's politics in America is bad. Man, at at least as far as we know, they're not killing individuals, right? They're not killing their fathers and their mothers and doing whatever it takes to get ahead. Well, Regardless of whether you're talking about Nazi Germany or you're talking about uh, Stalin Russia or you're talking about right, the, the, the cultural cleansing of, of Mao Zedong, whatever group or, or authority you're talking about, you might think, well, God certainly didn't ordain that. Well, you must have a small God because the God of Scripture is, is clearly denoted as being the one that places every king in, its, in his place for his season. 
Psalm 103, 19 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all, meaning over all kingdoms. Daniel 4, 35 says, All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. He does according to his will amongst the host of heaven and amongst the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? In Acts 17, 26, He made from one man every nation, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Listen, having determined allotted periods, so they all have a period of time, every kingdom, and boundaries of their dwelling place. So God is the one that sets periods and boundaries for every, every king, wicked or good. And the vast majority of human history tells us that they are, they are plagued by flawed, sinful human beings. So negatively speaking, there is theologically no authority except that God has established it. Positively speaking, the next phrase in the last part of verse 1, and those that exist have been instituted by God. That word instituted is significant. Remember? Tasso, it means that God has placed it. it. The way that I think of it, it literally means to place something, right? Put it in its right place. But I think of it as like setting up dominoes. Like, you know, you place it right there, right when you need it. And when it's time for you to knock it down, you knock it down. The you, of course, is not you and it's not me, it's God. He's the one that sets up kings. He's the one that brings them down. And so it says those that exist. And when it says those that exist, right, that that phrase is actually the existing ones. And I think it's speaking of every individual, every particular part of every government that has ever been established. God has placed them all in their place. That's right. Kings, right? Governors. It's a significant election or, or recall election coming up right? Mayors, congressmen, presidents, God's the one that places them in their position of authority. If not so, then God is not sovereign. Then elections are outside the domain of his control. He literally controls everything that happens in the universe. He juggles a billion things at once and doesn't drop a thing and everything fits according to his purposes towards his eschatological end. That's a mouthful, meaning that that is towards the end of all human history as he has ordained it. So what did that tell you? Well, all authority is instituted by God. That's the end of verse 1, verse 2. Insubordination, then, is resistance to God himself. Look at verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Look, all I'll say about, about that is this. If you recall, I said that the term resist is anti-tasso. Do you hear that? I said that the set up, right? God ordains something. He sovereignly places it in its place. It's tasso. Anti-tasso would be the opposite. It's to try to flick over that domino piece, even though God is the one that has set them up. To be resistant to authorities that God has placed above us is to be resistant to the one that has placed them there. That's the point. Tasso, anti-tasso, it's a, it's a play on words intentionally to get us to see that your resistance to the authorities that are above you is a resistance and a sinful one towards God's authority over you. I remember I, I, I gave you the historical background that by the time that Paul is writing to these Roman Christians, he's writing to the very Christians and the very church that is in the capital of the empire, the Roman Empire, and the current ruler is Nero, 
who's going to persecute Christians in some, one of the most, in some of the most wicked ways that we might imagine, making sport of them in their death, allowing them to be torn to pieces by animals or lighting them on fire, right, as, as, as kind of nightlights on the road into Rome. It's outrageous. And nevertheless, here is Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Spirit encouraging these Roman Christians, right, to recognize that resistance to authorities, even to Nero, would be resistance to what God has appointed. And that resistance should incur proper judgment because it is what God has ordained. And those, those, I, I review those because those two points are particularly informative and helpful and, and challenging to us, right? To embrace that theological truth. Now, let, let me say a couple of things so that we are clear about, about something, right? It's not to say that God necessarily approves of the character of every ruler, right? It's not that, that God says, okay, so Nero's in charge, and so that means that I love Nero, and I, I, just, I just want him to flourish, right? No, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that he takes any dictator or, or any person, the governor, you know, mayor, whatever, that he places them in position of authority and assumes that they're going to be perfectly moral individuals. Of course not. What's the best form of government that we have found in, in, um, in, in biblical history? It, it's, right, talking about human government, right? The best human government we have seen in terms of its flourishing is probably the reign of David. In fact, if you read through 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, every king is measured to David. He did not do as his father David had done, right? That's literally the, the standard. But let's review David's kingship. Was there sin in David's life while he was king? Yeah, sin to the magnitude that sounds like some of our leaders today, right? And even worse, committing adultery, using his authority to commit adultery, and then conspiring to murder the husband to cover up his sin. And then even having, and again, I use the term conspiracy because that's appropriate because he uses a general to say, press forward and then pull back and leave Uriah the Hittite out exposed so that he would die. That's murder, but that's using an accessory. That's, that's, that's conspiracy to murder. And then he conveniently forgets about it so that he himself is shocked when the prophet comes and says, you're that man. You're that sinner. So here is the best of earthly kings. And what can we say about his rule? It's still touched with weakness and sin. So the fact that God has placed authority in your life, whether they be teachers, whether they be bosses, whether they be right parents, that doesn't mean that God is saying that every person with any authority is his perfect example of Jesus Christ. Of course not. But it is to say that God has still placed authority in our lives. And I think point three and point four are going to give us some direction in terms of why he's placed the human government in particular in place of authority. God's purposes for a human government. All right. That's verses three and four. Let's read that. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Why would you have no fear of the one who is in the... Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. 
we begin by saying that God's purposes for human government is first and foremost to endorse goodness. They are servants, right? Governments, people of authority, are servants of God to endorse goodness. Can I say this, first of all? Have, have you noticed the unusual language that God applies to earthly unbelievers in their position of human government and authority? Verse 4 says, He is God's servant. I, I think it's talking about any person in authority. He is God's servant for your good. Later on in verse 4, to the last uh, sentence of verse 4 says, For he is the servant of God. Both those terms are the same. They are the, the New Testament term diakonos, which we get our English term deacon from. It means minister. And some, uh, some governments still use that terminology in their government structure. Right? We have a president, but other constitutional monarchies, um, they have a prime minister. A prime minister. And they speak about having a ministry of defense. It's the same term. It's the idea that someone serves for the household or for the family or for the group. Scripture seems to affirm that rulers are God's servants. And the intention, one of God's intentions in establishing these rulers is to endorse what is good. For rulers, verse 3 says, are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. But you have no fear of the one who is in authority, then do what is good. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. They, they are not a fear. They, are, they, they do not create fear for us if we're doing what is right. See, this is, God's, this is one of God's primary purposes for establishing human government, to promote the general good. And I know immediately you might be thinking, yeah, but like that depends on the authority, right? Goodness, morality, those things shift. It's true. But on the whole there's at least some semblance of morality in every human society. Whether you go to some small tribe that has been hidden away, that has never seen the electric light bulb, right? And there is someone in charge. They have certain rules. Those rules might be different from us, but they have certain rules. They often include things like you can't just kill somebody and steal their stuff. In fact, curiously enough, it looks a lot like the last six commandments of the Ten Commandments, Right? You shouldn't just steal someone's wife. You shouldn't steal their stuff. You shouldn't murder people. You shouldn't lie, generally speaking. Those things just kind of fit because I think that is baked into every human being made in the image of God. We are moral beings. And even unbelievers recognize that morality. And we saw that in Romans 1, that, that even the unbelieving soul is trying to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It takes some active effort on his part, on her part, to pretend that there is no morals in this universe. It's baked into what we are and how we're created. The rulers are not meant to terrorize those that work good, but instead, right, to terrorize those that do bad. God will judge all people, including everyone in positions of authority. We already said that God does not necessarily endorse the character of every place, every person that he has placed in authority. And a good example of that is Daniel 5. I think I might, might have mentioned this two weeks ago, but remember in Daniel 5, <clears throat> Belshazzar, who is the son of Nebuchadnezzar, he's partying. He's having a great time, and he thinks it'd be so much more fun if they go and they get the vessels that were stolen from the Jerusalem temple right? Get all that stuff, serve the hors d'oeuvres, 
and serve the wine in this stuff because it just kind of shows us that we are greater even than that Jewish God that's supposed to be so wonderful. And what happens? This hand, not a whole body, just a hand appears and starts writing on the wall and it writes these three words, mene, mene, well, three words, but he writes four words, but two words are repeated. Okay, sorry. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. Mene means that God has numbered the days of your kingdom. So Daniel comes and interprets that. He says, Mene. It means God has numbered the days of your kingdom. It's come to an end. All right? The last one, Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. But the one in the middle, Tekel, is what's interesting to me here. You have been weighed. Tekel means you have been weighed. It means the way you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. In other words, God is speaking to an unbelieving king that he has placed in authority and he's letting him know that you are still accountable for everything you do. You are still accountable to how you govern because that is the role that I placed you for. So evildoers, even if they're in positions of authority, they will pay the full penalty of their sins. But rulers, and generally speaking, governments are not established by God as a terror to good, but for bad. He says, you don't want to have fear of authority? Simple, don't break their laws. Unless breaking their law is a requirement of God's law. And by the way, you need text and verse in that. You can't just feel like, well, I feel like I'm not, I'm not serving God well, and so I decide, you know, I'm going to rob this bank and buy a church, right? You can't just do what you want. You have to obey the rules that have been governed above us unless it requires us to break text and verse, God's law. Why? Because he is a servant for your good. A servant reminds us, I like, I like what Leon Morris says, a servant reminds us that that governor, that king, he is no more. He is not, he is not God, even if some rulers have had very exalted views of themselves and their functions. The word servant originally signified the service of a table waiter and denotes the lowly service in general. However exalted he may be among people, the ruler is nothing more than a lowly servant before God. And he is a servant to you, as this phrase says. And he's a servant to you for your good. And God gives us that personal touch that that is the intention and the purposes of human authority. Right? So, if... God's servant is for our good, that means that we ought to live in a manner that's appropriate to that authority. 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, we'll reference this again later, but it says, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. The thing to underline in verse 2 of 1 Timothy 2 is that we may lead. This is the purpose to which we pray for our kings and our rulers, that we might lead a peaceful and quiet life. In other words, that is part of what they exist for. God has created these authority structures so that they might establish what is generally good. They are to establish a sense of peace and of, of, of calmness, of quietness. It's, it's the rule, and it is, uh, it is the purpose of authority to rule in a way that establishes peace, peacefulness, right? So governmental authority, even flawed and sinful government authority, is still sovereignly placed there over us by God 
as a provision for good and flourishing. They may be failing at that, but the intention that God has placed government above us is so that they might be, do good and might flourish. Aristotle classified government in three ways. He did it by how many people are in charge. There's the rule of one, and that's monarchy or tyranny. There's a rule of few, that's aristocracy or oligarchy. Or there's a rule of many, polity or democracy. This is a, this is a, these are his terms so that we understand. And if there's a rule of one, he says that there's either a monarch, and by a monarch, he means that there is a good king or queen. They're benevolent, they care about the people. But if they don't care about the people and they only care about themselves, he calls them tyrants. Still a rule of one. There's only three forms of government, right? Um, But he could be a monarch, good for the people, or he can be a tyrant, just all by himself, right? Secondly, there is the rule by the few. And if they are good and they care about the, the constituency, about the country as a whole, about the state, then they are the aristocracy. They care about others. And even though they rule together, they rule together in a way that blesses all. But if they're all about themselves, of power-mongering, and of uh, producing wealth, of self-centered pursuits, then that's an oligarchy. They rule with an iron hand, and they use everyone else as a means for their enrichment. That's the rule of the few. And then the rule by many. He calls the first polity. And you would mean that, that uh, it would be closer to what we would think of as, as representative democracy. That we work together to make decisions that is good for the overall whole. That as a group we move, but we care about all of us, and so we move as a group. That would be a good thing. He called that polity. And he uses the term democracy for mob rule. <laughs> I think that's kind of interesting, right? Because his thing is if everybody gets a say-so without any kind of you know, particular representation and that chaos of thousands in his mind, right? right? City-states, maybe hundreds, thousands of people. That's chaotic. Can you imagine making a decision where it's, it's something like, you know, something unnecessary and whatever. It could be like, hey, what will be the thing that we eat for lunch today? Okay, let's get everyone's opinions. Can you imagine how many? So his whole thing is that is just chaos and not good, and he felt like he was closer to mob rule. What's the point of bringing you uh, this uh, attention to all of this? It's to say that I agree that that's a good way of categorizing all the rules of human government. Rule by one, rule by few, rule by many. They can be decent or they can be bad, and they exist at any lane in between, right? There's so many degrees of what governments are above anyone that is a child of God and a believer in Jesus Christ. Which one of these is to be preferred? Whichever one God has historically placed you in. Christians are called to thrive and to submit to any form of government which God has ordained over, over them, whether it be a monarch or a tyrant, whether it's, an, it's the aristocracy or an oligarchy, whether it's representative democracy or mob rule or near mob rule, right? Like whatever is the case, that governmental structure has been ordained by God and so we are to see it as God's servant for our good. Romans 13 applies to any form of human government at any time. So take a gospel perspective, because if we are longing <clears throat> for a better government, that's good. We should. But for those that have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, we know that there is the best, the ultimate government to come. That there is a king, that he will sit on the throne, 
and that he will rule justly and righteously for all of eternity and there will be no injustice no no self-centeredness no act of greed or wickedness there'll be nothing to question perfect judge perfect king a perfect benevolent ruler the king of kings and the lord of lords and because we know that we can tolerate the shadow the dark shadow, the mess of the, the stinky shadows of the governments that we exist under until that king comes. I'm going to say this. There's only one thing that's worse than bad government, and that's no government at all. If you've ever read through the book of Judges, Judges is interesting, right? It's, it's, it's guys like Samson who have taken a Nazarite vow for all his life. That means he's never supposed to cut his hair, he's never supposed to drink uh, alcohol, He's never supposed to be with women. If you know the story of Samson, it's like, hey, hold on a second. Maybe Nazareth means something totally different in his day because he does all of those things. And eventually, finally, when his hair is cut, that's the last straw and he loses his strength, right? He's a judge. He's one in authority over the nation of Israel. That's nuts. And as you read through that book, again, you find gods, that you find individuals, guys that are, that are brigands, that are former thugs, that become leaders of that nation. Like, it is the worst of rulers. And the explanation in Judges, right, because the chaos that ensues ends up towards the end of that book in chapter 20 with, like, rape, cutting up of a human body, sending the pieces to the other tribes, like civil war, and nearly killing off the tribe of Benjamin. I mean, craziness ensues in the book of judges what is the explanation why is everyone going crazy judges 17 6 in those days there was no king in israel everyone did what was right in his own eyes guys a human society that's left to do whatever every individual wants to do is is this is a society like the period of the judges where morality is thrown out the window and Man, you got to be very careful for your own self and for your safety because anything can happen and almost everything does. So God's purpose of human government, well, one is that they are servants to endorse goodness. Secondly, point B, is they're servants to avenge justice. They're, they are there to avenge. I know, as soon as they say avenge, I, I say, what, what are avengers supposed to do? You're going to say assemble, right? That's what you're thinking. And no, no, Avengers don't just assemble because it's, it's like Avengers assemble. I, I don't get why that became the cry because it's not like Avengers get together. Oh man, it's good that we're all here, right? Like, no, I think you're supposed to go punish evildoers. That's what avenging means, by the way. It means to punish, right? To bring, not bring vengeance, not to revenge, but to bring righteousness, righteous judgment on those that are doing evil, so verse 4 says he's, a God, he's uh, talking about government is God's servant for good, for good, for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is a servant of God, servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now I want us to pick up this phrase for a second that, that the government does not bear the sword in vain. It says, if you do wrong, be, be afraid. It's appropriate. If you don't want to be afraid, then do, do what is according to the law of the state. But if you do what is wrong, what is illegal, then you should be afraid, right? Because he bears, he does not bear the sword in vain. 
That's a very strong statement because it says specifically that the governing authority bears the sword. It'd be the equivalent of us saying the governing authorities have a right. Scripture seems to say they have a right to bear arms. It suggests that God has ordained human government to protect by means of force and potentially by deadly force. That's what the sword is, right? They bear the sword. Why? To protect and to punish. To protect its citizens, obviously, from violence. It implies that all governments have the right to use force to defend its own borders, to defend itself against invaders. It also implies that a government has a right to use force against criminals and those who have stepped outside the laws who undermine peace and quiet. They have the right to use force that way. And the warning here is for every soul, right? We go back to verse 1, that every soul, every human being is to submit themselves, subject themselves to governing authorities. If you do what is wrong, be afraid. He doesn't bear the sword in vain. Instead, he, the government, is a servant of God. You see that language again. He's a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on wrongdoers. So avenging means to punish those that do evil. So their task, part of their task, is not just to promote what is good and to, and to punish what is bad, but also to protect those right, from wrongdoers. They're, they're citizens from those that are doing wrong. They carry out God's wrath. You notice that phrase, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. In other words, they're an instrument, imperfect and flawed, certainly. Sometimes unjust, yes. But they're designed by God is to bear the sword to carry out God's wrath on those that deserve his wrath. That's part of what government exists for. They act against sin on God's behalf. That's how they are servants of God, to promote good, to punish evil, and to protect its people. That's what every government exists to do. And yes, every, gov- every government in some category has failed. Nevertheless, just like every father has not been Jesus Christ every moment, right? Every manager among you, right? Every boss Every president has not been the perfect example of Jesus Christ, not even good Christian ones. The best of us, like King David, still struggle with sin. Nevertheless, this is God's ordained purposes for human authority. The Christian response to human government is always informed by the gospel and the truth of who God is, who we are, and what we have to come in terms of eternal life so that we could bear with things that are sometimes unbearable. I know some of us feel very strongly that we'd like a better country, and that's not a bad thing. And we live in a society and in a form of government that allows us to voice that, even peaceably protest to that, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. I think that's good. I, I, I believe that you should engage because as citizens of this nation right now, you have the right to engage. But can I remind you that there are brothers and sisters right? In Christ, brothers and sisters, Christians like us, who struggle with the same things, who are trying to raise their kids in the right way, who are trying to direct hearts to the gospel of Jesus Christ, they live in countries where they do not have any freedoms. There are no choices. Yes, we can pray that those governments would change. But in the end, those Christians have a responsibility to do their best to live 
a peaceable and quiet life under that government while never giving in to what God demands of their lives in Scripture, including bearing a testimony of the cause and the name of Jesus Christ to all. Look up in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. You're in Romans 13 right now. Look at verse 14 through 21 so that we're reminded of our responsibility as Christians and how this is all consistent. Because you might be thinking to yourselves, as I think to myself, when I get to chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, talking about human government, I'm thinking like, why, Paul? Like, why is this even a big deal? And it's because everything in our lives falls under the rubric of our redemption. Romans 12, 14 says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Reap with those that weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. How can Christians overcome evil with good? We do that because Jesus Christ has overcome our sins with his perfect sacrifice. We of all people should be willing to suffer for the sake of goodness and for the reputation of Jesus Christ because he has indeed suffered for us. We are all sinners, right? And only God can redeem us. And this applies not just to us Christians, but to the unbeliever that is listening to this, as well as every earthly authority. All sinners, all equally deserving of death and eternal damnation. The only reason why we might find salvation is because of what Christ has done for us. That's the gospel response. Right, to human authority. Okay, so we look at God's purposes for human government, um, the Christian call for submission to government in verses 5 through 7. <clears throat> the Christian call for submission to government. So from verse 5 through 7, we have then just a series of commands. It, it's, it's the therefore. In fact, verse 5 begins with the therefore. It says, therefore, one must be in subjection. Notice the must, Right? Submit for the sake of conscience, yes, but we begin with the necessity of it. The word must is a, is a word that translates that something is necessary or it could be used in the sense of it's inevitable. It's like Thanos, right? Yeah, I'm inevitable, right? It means that it is necessary in the sense that it has to be. And Paul seems to be suggesting to us that for Christians who understand that the blood of Christ has covered us, that we stand righteous before God, not because of ourselves, but because of what Christ has done for us. For those that have been saved by grace alone, he is saying, there is a necessity upon your soul to live in subjection. Not only, he says, to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. He says it two ways. One, that you want to avoid the wrath of God. We saw that earlier in verse 4, that government is a servant for God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath. So it is government and its punishment is the hand of God in the world. Sometimes that could be used, manipulated sinfully, imperfectly. Sometimes injustice could take place. And nevertheless, it is their hand, is the hand of God, right, to avenge wrongdoers in this world. 
And so when it says that we must live in subjection, it's a necessity because we should try to avoid what is the instrument of God's wrath. If we suffer for doing something that is illegal, so be it. You can't call yourself a martyr, right, if you suffer for sin. You know, there's too many self-righteous Christians who often think that. I'm not just talking about government. I'm talking about anything. They feel like, man, that person is saying that, that, you know, that I'm sinning, they have a bad temper, etc. And I just feel like, you know, that they're, they are just coming down on me. They are judging me. They are, you know what I mean? I, I feel like I need to read the Psalms, you know, talking about my enemies and how they're rising against me and how I'm persecuted and stuff. And it's like, oh, really? But is it true, though, like what they're saying? Do you, yeah, it's totally true. I've yelled at that, cursed at that guy, you know, and stuff. I just lost my temper. But that happens. It's like, foolish guy. You know, that you're suffering not as a martyr for doing what is good. You're suffering because you're a sinner. So even if you're a Christian, if you rob a bank, you deserve to go to jail. If you're a Christian, if you've done something sinful and illegal and you're caught, you deserve to go to jail. So we should submit to authority, not only to avoid God's wrath so that we don't become then penalized by God's righteous wrath through the instrumentation of human government, it says, but also for the sake of conscience. And I love that phrase. Not only to avoid, right, just punishment because we've done wrong, but because you know that it is God's will and intention for establishing government authority and all authority over you for you to submit. You know that, so it would injure your healthy conscience to oppose God's ordained authorities. Men and women, anytime we begin a pattern of speaking badly about those that are placed in authority above us, children, to your parents, if you like rebel against them, you like call them names, you think lowly of them, etc. As you inform and you calibrate your conscience in that deadening way, right? Or maybe it's at work and you talk about that supervisor, that boss, he's an idiot, she's an idiot. They don't know what they're doing, right? And you denigrate them. You are dialing down your conscience in a certain way. That if you think about authority or politics or anything and you speak about them, you think about them, you seethe against them, you rail against them, you change your conscience slowly but surely towards a seared conscience, an injured conscience, a darkening conscience, where you are started to say that what is unrighteous according to Scripture is righteous by your standard because you said so. The foolishness of that is that's how we habituate sin and patterns of discontent, anger, and depression. To the degree that authority is not commanding a clear violation of God's own law, our Christian conscience obligates us to obedience. Not only for fear of God's wrath, which may come if we are disobedient, but also for the sake of our conscience. And we're going to see conscience in the next chapter to come, in the weeks ahead. But we are to calibrate our conscience in such a way that it is sensitive to the things that God wants it to be sensitive to. Listen, we studied a whole thing on conscience I thought was helpful, and and I think some people found it a little bit confusing. And I think part of the confusion is that you might think your conscience is monolithic, that it's prefabbed, it's set, that everyone has a different conscience, and that's just the reality of it. 
And whatever you do, don't offend my conscience. Brother, sister, if you are thinking that way, you're actually reading the scriptures backwards. All right? Because if you read through Romans 14, what you hear constantly is that your conscience needs to be informed and changed. That if your conscience is bad or weak and you're overly sensitive to something, you need to change that because you need to be informed by Scripture to change that. And if your conscience is strong and you're in the right, you need to be mindful that you're not judging others and demanding others to have the same conscience as you. See, it is never about, will you have the same conscience as me? It's how can I calibrate my conscience to the, to the conformity of God's standards so that even if you act or live differently from me, that doesn't offend me because it's not my kingdom. Because I'm not, like my conscience, my thoughts are not monolithic. It's not set in stone. It is whatever God informs me. And if you tell me something that is helpful to me to inform godliness, then perhaps I should, I should change and recalibrate my conscience in a way that is less sensitive to these things so that I don't become legalistic, right? Or that at least is, is more loving towards these individuals whose consciences are sensitive so that I don't become heavy-handed. That's the, the idea of conscience. And so we have the capacity of informing our conscience for good. And we ought to inform our conscience for good. We should submit for the sake of conscience. Take a look at First Peter chapter 2 here. I have it. Oh, my. <laughs> for the front row that can read that, right? You can look. Otherwise, you might have to look this up on yourself. I apologize. I, I didn't realize it's so small. There's a lot of verses. First Peter chapter 2, verse 10 to 17 says this. Once you were not a people. See, it begins with our redemption. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Let me give you this last point really quickly. Sorry, verse 6 and 7. Not only submit for the sake of conscience, but we have a duty to support authority. I know this probably we should bank on for a while because uh, it deals with taxes, right? Verse 6 says, For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. The question is, why does Paul bring up taxes of all things, right? Like submission to authority, we could go a lot of directions. Taxes? Why, why would that be? The, it's because... This is the most obviously objectionable demand of secular government for believers. You say, why? Well, whether you're talking about Jewish individuals, right, of the, of, of the, during the Roman Empire, or you're talking about Christians, right, redeemed Jewish Christians, or you're talking about Gentile Christians, or you're talking about us, taxes, the question in Matthew 22, and we won't look there, right, the question is, is it lawful to pay taxes? Do you remember that, Pharisees and Rhodians? They come, teacher, what's your opinion? Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus, aware of their malice, says this, why are you putting me to the test, hypocrites? Show me a coin. He says, whose likeness is on this coin? They say, Caesar's. 
Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. By that statement, he legitimizes the collection of taxes and government officials. And to God, the things that are God. And he reminds us that there's still a higher authority than all the above. And when they heard that, they marveled and they left and went away. It is natural, right, for us to think about what it means to give money, our hard-earned money, to a government that cares nothing about God's rules or God's morals. A government that might fund the killing of the unborn, that promotes sexual sinfulness as acts of tolerance, that oppose the teachings of scriptures and trains our kids to be suspicious of a creator God or the depravity of humankind and the need for a savior. Should I be giving money to them? And if you're talking about, should I just give money to these false ideologies, the answer is no. But Jesus affirms the legitimacy of governmental authorities and says that, yes, you give taxes to sinful governments because they are still God's ministers, right? That, that phrase is a different word, but similar thing. It is to say that they are God's people placed in positions of ministry for our good, attending to this very purpose. What purpose? punishing the wicked, promoting the good, right, and protecting its citizens. So how do you support your government? Well, verse 7, pay to all what is owed them. Taxes, to whom taxes are due, that's a term that means something that is direct taxes, like your income tax. Revenue, to whom revenue is owed, that, that is every fee that the government charges you for getting a license, right, to indirect taxes like, you know, sales tax, etc., all of the above. Pay what is required of you in these different categories. And then in terms of your attitude, respect to whom respect is owed. It literally says fear to whom fear. In other words, reverence individuals that are placed in authority over us and honor those that have been placed above us. All of that leads us to know that the gospel does have an impact on those that govern us. And submission to God-ordained government is a requirement of every child of God, not because they are perfect, but because God is. And in his perfect wisdom, he has decreed in this broken and fallen world that we have sinful rulers and leaders, flawed human beings, even the elders among you, and nevertheless, we submit to them, trusting in God's grace and sufficiency for us. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word and for your grace towards us and ask that you would bless us to understand you and to trust you in all things for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.